Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, January 28th, 2023. It's been 3,258 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 339 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we concur with recent assessments by other analysts that it is highly likely the Russian Federation will launch a new offensive before February 24th to try and deliver a tactical victory before the anniversary of the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Second, we maintain that the significant increase in disinformation and misinformation from Russian sources is being directed by Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Federation Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, as part of his hybrid warfare doctrine. Third, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative except on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Fourth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine remains combat ineffective and is relying on World War II tactics that Field Marshal Georgi Zhukov would recognize to move the line of conflict. Fifth, We maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned with private military company or PMC Wagner group head Yevgeny Prigozhin is continuing, and Russian President Vladimir Putin is the largest benefactor. Sixth, we assess that punitive missile and drone strikes targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue. The attacks on January 25th and 26th demonstrated that Ukrainian air defenses are becoming increasingly effective, achieving an 88% success rate. Seventh, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Eighth, we assess that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low, with the Black Sea Fleet launching fewer than 25 missiles between December 28th and January 27th. Ninth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Tenth, we assess there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in February 2023 as an extension of current legal decrees and has likely already started after a statement made by Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov. And finally, we assess that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of an offensive operation is negligible. 
Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. Russian mill blogger Vlad Lentatarsky reported that fighting in Luhansk was very light, with both combatants utilizing a significant amount of artillery. On the Kremina axis, artillery exchanges and positional fighting were reported in and near Ploshanka and Chervonopopivka, with no change in the situation. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported an attack on Nevsky was repulsed. In our assessment, this was a reconnaissance or DRG unit in the forested areas to the east, based in part on a video showing regional police distributing humanitarian aid to town residents on the same day. There weren't any reports of significant fighting on the Kremina axis, with the GSAFU reporting Russian forces shelled Ukrainian positions in or near Dibrova, Kuzmina, and Kremina. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, or JCCC, reported that three rockets fired by HIMARS struck two grain hangars in Novo Oleksandrivka, and four more rockets struck Novoidar, a critical transit hub that connects Starobilsk, Luhansk, and Severodonetsk. Serhii Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian occupiers have started dismantling the cardboard and paper factory in northeast Rubizhne and are shipping viable equipment to Russia. Several sources, including the Institute for the Study of War, Bloomberg and Oleksii Danilov, Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, report that Russia appears to be preparing for offensive operations in Luhansk and is building up a substantial number of elite troops near Kremina. Bloomberg reported that despite the sense of reality that Russia cannot achieve even the limited goal of capturing the Donbass is creeping through the hallways of the Kremlin, Russian President Vladimir Putin is prepared to continue for years if necessary. We've previously assessed that since the rout of Russian forces in Kharkiv and the liberation of Izium, that the continued attacks on Solidar Bakhmut are pointless. The goal of capturing the Donbass by surrounding Ukrainian forces is unachievable with current Russian resources without recapturing Izium and capturing Slovyansk and Kramatorsk first. Ukrainian forces successfully defended the region in the summer of 2022 with Russian troops attacking from Izium and Liman using better-trained troops with better equipment, supported by Iskander short-range ballistic missiles, or SRBMs, significantly more artillery, and extensive close-air support by the Russian VKS and helicopters. We documented the first M777 artillery strikes on May 2nd on the Axis, and the second HIMARS strike of the war was on June 25th in Izium. Russian forces could launch an offensive from Luhansk or the sliver of Kharkiv they control north of Svatova. We've also noted a significant buildup of Ukrainian troops and equipment in the Kupiansk area, northwest of the Luhansk administrative border. One challenge Russian troops would face in launching offensive operations on this particular axis is the heavy and repeated use of remote mines, making mapping safe routes for advancing soldiers nearly impossible. Now, we're not dismissing these assessments. On the contrary, this is a logical area to strike with the resources expended at Solodar Bakhmut, which started in the Svetlodarsk bulge on May 17th. We would remind our listeners that many analysts, including our team, were somewhat or completely convinced that Russia would launch an offensive from Belarus toward Rivne, 
which never happened. Since Russian forces tried to capture all of Pavlivka, most offensive operations have been light infantry focused with minimal armor support. Russian artillery fire is down 75% compared to June 2022, and the VKS rarely commits to the extensive close air support we saw over Hirskozolote, Severodonetsk, and Luhansk. Additionally, the weather is an unknown and uncontrollable factor, with winter in Ukraine apparently still on holiday. All of that said, Russian forces could recapture territory along this axis, but we find it incredibly unlikely that they can reach and take control of Izum and Liman and then launch an attack on Kramatorsk and Slovyansk. In northeast Donetsk, on the Siversk axis, Russian forces continued attacks on Ukrainian positions east of Vertnokamyanskia from the oil refinery on the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border, without success. Fighting also continued in the eastern regions of Spirna. A geolocated video showed Russian forces were shelled in the area of Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk. Mercenaries with Wargonzo and Rybar reported that PMC Wagner attempted to capture Rozdolivka and advance on Mykolaivka from Krasnopolivka, with a Ukrainian source reporting marginal Russian advances toward Mykolaivka. Fighting continued near Blachodatne and Krasnohora, with the situation in the latter becoming more difficult for Ukrainian forces. On the Bakhmut axis, fighting continued on the city's northern and eastern edges. There weren't any verifiable claims of changes in territorial control. The GSAFU reported an attack on Paraskovievka was repulsed, with NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showing a thermal anomaly to the south of the settlement. South of Bakhmut, there continues to be an information vacuum about the situation west of Klishivka. The GSAFU reported that attacks in the area were repulsed, while Rybar claimed that, quote, control expanded along the Siversky Donetsk Donbass Canal. We had assessed on January 26th that PMC Wagner had reached and likely crossed the canal southwest of Klishivka. Russian claims about advances toward Predtechne are likely exaggerating the progress along the canal area. Russian forces heavily shelled Chasivyar, causing significant damage to residential areas and civilian infrastructure, killing two and wounding five. In southwest Donetsk, there was only positional fighting on the Avdivka and Marinka axes, with the Russian 1st Army Corps concentrating artillery on Avdivka, Marinka, and Ukhledar. Avdiivka was heavily shelled by artillery and grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, wounding four. There were no attempts by Russian forces to advance on Ukrainian defensive lines. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on Vodyana and against the firebase at Nevelsky. NASA firms indicated that Ukrainian positions in Pervomaisky were shelled. Fighting was limited in Marinka, with videos and pictures showing Russian forces shelling the city's center, contrary to reports that the 1st Army Corps had, quote, seized the initiative and pushed Ukrainian troops to the western outskirts. The new pictures and videos confirmed our January 25th and 26th assessment that Russian troops did not, in fact, control the center of Marinka. Now, of course, we do link to most of the photos and videos we mention in the episodes in our full situation report on Patreon. Fair warning, though, the music used by the Russian state media source RT, 
that's Russia Today, in the Medinka video might violate the Geneva Convention. The polyrhythm is very uncomfortable. On the Uhladar axis, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Kholakovsky of the 11th Motor Infantry Brigade of the Russian 1st Army Corps reported that his forces lost their foothold in the dachas north of the Kashlahat River between Mikilske and Pavlivka. Kholakovsky claimed that after unit members became encircled in the dachas and faced a superior force, they requested an artillery strike on their positions. This contrasts with Rybar's claim that Russian forces were, quote, mopping up in the dachas, and Wargonzo's loftier claim that Russian troops had reached the southern edge of Ulfledar. A geolocated video showed that positions held by the Russian 155th Motor Infantry Brigade, which is no longer part of the naval infantry after a Kremlin declaration on January 26, were battered by Ukrainian artillery. A geolocated Russian video showed a Ukrainian position in Pavlivka on the north bank of the Kashlahach River being shelled, confirming that Russian forces never fully captured the settlement in the fall and remained south of the natural water barrier. Operational Command East, or OCE, spokesperson Colonel Serhi Cherevati reported that Russian forces suffered heavy losses from 58 engagements, while Russian artillery and tank units fired 322 shells and rockets. He claimed that 109 Russian troops were killed, 188 were wounded, and four main battle tanks, or MBTs, and three infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, were destroyed. Donetsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Pavlo Kirilenko stated that two civilians were killed and one wounded in Ukhladar. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces held their defensive positions, while the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, didn't mention the region in its morning report. The Russian MOD claimed Russian forces attacked Prechistivka and were able to advance on the settlement. Not a single other source reported fighting in the area. We did not update the map. On the Velikanovosilka axis, the Russian MOD also claimed, without providing any evidence, that Russian forces had advanced on Novosilka. Insurgents in Mariupol reported an explosion near Kalinivka, north of the destroyed Ilyich ironworks. There wasn't any additional information at the time of recording. Insurgents also claimed one person was injured in a car bomb explosion near Volnavacha. There were also reports that damaged Russian military equipment continued to be moved into the city from the direction of Zaporizhia, lightly damaged hardware was being repaired in Mariupol, while heavily damaged equipment continued east toward actually Russia. Russian-occupied Makievka was shelled in the early morning hours and evening. There were reports of a fire caused by a power line failure, with Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, officials later claiming it was caused by an artillery strike. The disruption damaged electrical transformers and caused power surges and outages in the region. Russian-occupied Horlivka was also shelled, causing significant damage. Outrage grew on social media from apparent price-gouging for food in grocery stores in the occupied territories. Just days after the self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, had said the issue had been addressed. A video recorded by a frustrated shopper showed cherry tomatoes were $6.80 per kilogram, fresh corn was $1.42 an ear, and Hungarian peppers were $8 a kilogram. It's important to note that the average salary for a DNR resident is about $2,500 a year. 
Local officials threatened to, quote, raid area businesses that were price gouging. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. There was minimal shelling in Kherson Oblast, with Russian forces firing 19 times into free Ukraine with five strikes on the city of Kherson, killing two and wounding seven. A Russian artillery shell landed near a car, killing the 24-year-old woman driving and severely wounding her husband. Pictures taken immediately after the attack were shared on social media, which some may find disturbing. In a separate attack, a 25-year-old woman was killed. Unsurprisingly, the Kremlin disputed the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, report that eight explosions were close to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on January 25th. Russian engineers reportedly will start work to connect ZNPP to the 750-kilovolt Russian electrical grid through Crimea on February 2nd, in defiance of ongoing negotiations led by IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi. The IAEA is firm in its position that it does not recognize Russia's claim to have ownership of the plant, and it must be demilitarized. This is only the second time the Kremlin has disputed claims by the IAEA. In our assessment, the accusation that monitors at the plant are making false claims is a prelude to terminating negotiations about creating a green zone around the facility. Ukrainian Colonel Yevhen Yerin, the head of the Joint Press Center of the Defense Forces of the Tavria region, reported, quote, Certain signs of a strengthening of the grouping are currently observed in the Zaporizhia region. The enemy is making certain attempts at assaults in some areas to test the strength of our defenses. End quote. Rybar claimed that Ukrainian forces were preparing for an attack in the Orihiv direction and had increased artillery fire. In our assessment, this is the second region where Russian forces could launch renewed offensive operations before February 24th. However, the terrain is not favorable for light infantry, as Russian troops have already discovered. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces are using inflatable decoys on the Zaporizhia axis to pump up the size of their force strength. Russian psyops are missing two key points, though, in using inflatables. They don't produce heat signatures, and when they were deployed, Russian forces neglected to create tank tracks to trick reconnaissance into believing they were driven to their parked location. Otherwise, Artillery, rockets, and tank fire were exchanged from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola, Orihiv, and west to Kamyanskia. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Black Sea fleet had 12 ships on patrol, including two missile carriers capable of launching 12-caliber cruise missiles. In a rare report from the Russian Navy, they reported that 14 ships were on patrol, including three Kilo-class submarines, with the ability to launch up to 20-caliber cruise missiles. Russian forces shelled the ochakiv Romada, causing significant damage in Ochakiv and Kutsurub. No injuries were reported. On the Russian front, the Kerch Strait ferry was suspended for a second day due to poor weather, 
with 173 trucks waiting to cross into Crimea. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. General Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, approved the creation of dedicated drone strike companies, possibly the first units of their kind in a modern army. The initiative invests in the design and production of domestic reconnaissance and combat drones, while the first group of service members has already been selected to field the first military units. Each company will be armed with drones, munitions, Starlink uplinks, and other equipment needed to provide unmanned air support in areas of intense fighting. The general staff updated the number of missiles and drones used in the January 26th attacks, again. Russia launched 57 missiles, including two Kinzhal hypersonic missiles, nine caliber cruise missiles, one Cold War-era KH-55 nuclear-capable missile with a dummy warhead as a decoy, and 47 KH-101, 102, or 59 missiles, including Cold War-era anti-ship cruise missiles. Air defenses shot down 47 of 55 possible targets, which aligns with the initial reports on January 26th. The number of Shahed-136 kamikaze drones bumped back to 24, with all 24 shot down. Ukrainian air defenses had a success rate of 90%, the best performance since the first wave of attacks on October 10th. Valim Skibitsky, a representative of the Defense Intelligence of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or GUR, reported that Russia is moving logistics, supply, and ammunition hubs 80 to 120 kilometers from the front line, so they're out of range of NATO-provided HIMARS and Ukrainian Alder M MLRS. The withdrawal complicates Russian logistics, but not enough to slow down operations. Skibitsky has asked for longer-range weapons so that Ukraine can strike these locations. President Zelensky honored Holocaust Remembrance Day in Kyiv at a somber ceremony with government and religious representatives. Polish Defense Minister Mariusz Blaszczyk announced his nation was leading a, quote, tank coalition to support Ukraine and was negotiating with nations that have leopard 2A4 tanks in their inventory to transfer them. The flags displayed during the announcement included Spain, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Poland, Canada, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. Poland also announced another aid package to Ukraine, which includes 30 PT-91 Tvardy main battle tanks, or MBTs, and 30 upgraded T-72s. The PT-91 was developed by Poland at the turn of the last century, that means the 1990s, and is based on the T-72 chassis. Spain confirmed they would transfer Leopard 2A4 MBTs, quote, before spring, and they had accepted a German request to help train Ukrainian crews. We had previously reported that Spain has 108 2A4s in inventory, with up to 56 that could be made combat-ready. The remaining 56 are in very poor condition and really only good for scrap. Germany announced another military aid package, which included missiles for Iris-T defense systems, 13 trucks, 12 semi-trucks with four semi-trailers, 107 border protection vehicles, 145 pickup trucks, four mobile and protected mine-clearing systems, 168 mobile heating systems, 20 technicals with 70mm MLRS mounted in the truck bed, 
15 armored recovery vehicles, and 12 M1070 Oshkosh tank transporters. Belgian Prime Minister Alexandre de Croix announced a 92 million euro military aid package for Ukraine, the largest since February 24th. The package includes AIM-120 Amram missiles for the NASM's air defense system, manpads, armored cars, border patrol vehicles, small arms, and light anti-tank weapons. Another hint that serious discussions are ongoing about providing Ukraine with combat aircraft when Deputy National Security Advisor to the Biden administration, John Finer, was asked about providing F-16s to Ukraine, he said, quote, We do not exclude and did not exclude any specific systems. We tried to adapt our assistance to the phase of the struggle that the Ukrainians are in, end quote. It's worth noting that the F-16A variants Denmark has said they're willing to transfer to Ukraine are incapable of making ground attacks using standoff weapons. Ukraine will need F-16C or newer variants to use them for ground attacks. Speaking of incapable, let's talk about Russian mobilization. A Russian Mi-8 helicopter used to transport senior officials of the Russian government crashed in Moscow after its tail rotor struck the ground and it suffered a hard landing. Only the flight crew was aboard and Russian officials claim no one was injured. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and failed Mobik Igor Girkin-Strelkov was silent today after a telegram spat with PMC Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin. Strelkov replied to Prigozhin's offer to join Wagner as a piece of meat, with the former defense minister of the DNR writing, quote, I believe that this kind of proposal should not be made through the public media, or, since they have already been announced, they must be backed up and developed by negotiations in the normal mode, i.e. through official representatives of PMC Wagner. So far, I have not received any specific proposals. I can only say that I will be ready to consider them in the above version of normal business negotiations with military employees of PMCs. Nothing more, nothing less. End quote. Quick sidebar. There is not enough popcorn in the world. Also, if Strelkov joins PMC Wagner, we will probably miss him. The GUR claimed that Russian forces have to integrate penal soldiers into regular units because there aren't enough unassigned MOBICs to fill the ranks. The GUR reported that Russian units have a serious problem with platoon and company commanders refusing to join their troops in direct combat. Weird. <laughs> I wonder why. Reportedly, up to 40% of units on the front lines are leaderless, with their commanders playing REMFs, that's R-E-M-F, or in more polite company, staying in the rear with the gear. If you want to know what a REMF is, ask a veteran. Or Google, actually. Google would probably work in this case. Because Russian units are commanded top-down, and a lack of communications equipment remains a major problem, Deployed platoons are incapable of adapting to changes on the battlefield and don't have command staff available to help them overcome, adapt, and improvise. In Zlataus, Russia, a pile of disposed-of zinc-lined coffins used by the Russian Federation Armed Forces was found lying in a field about three kilometers from the nearest cemetery. One of the coffins in the picture was still sealed. This is not the first time that improperly disposed of coffins and corpses of Russian soldiers have been found. 
For reference, coffins used for transit are frequently lined with zinc because it is easy to seal hermetically. The military has opened up 429 criminal cases against refuseniks in Russian-occupied Crimea. That's the equivalent of two to three companies of soldiers. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is very minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. In Mikhailivka Zaporizhia, which has an active insurgency, the body of a woman arrested by the FSB on December 10th was found on the side of the road with 15 bullet wounds. The woman was taken away after a raid involving 10 agents, with Russian officials refusing to respond to family requests about her status. Her bullet-riddled and beaten body was discovered on the road between Mikhailivka and Tokmak. Her bullet-riddled and beaten body was discovered on the road between Mikhailivka and Tokmak. The Ukrainian Center for National Resistance accused Russia of moving 3,100 prisoners incarcerated before February 24th in Zaporizhia and Kherson to Crimea and Russia. The prisoners are allegedly being abused and tortured to add pressure for them to enlist with several PMCs, including Wagner Group and Patriot. In geopolitical news, Swedish-Danish edgelord Rasmus Paludan burned a second Quran in Stockholm and said he would continue to burn one once a week. I don't think that that is one of the habits of highly effective people. The Kremlin is running short of friends, but North Korea pledged its unwavering support to Russia, stating it would, quote, always be in the same trench, end quote. The quote could be taken several different ways if you stop to think about it, but we'll assume they didn't mean a shallow ditch on the side of the road. In economic news, the ruble ended the week dropping to an official exchange rate of 71 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices gave back some of the gains from the week, with WTI crude falling to $80 a barrel and Brent dropping to 87 Russian Ural's crude was steady with an official price of $59 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market was down slightly to $2.59 a gallon or $0.68 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures were flat, climbing slightly to €56 Euros per megawatt hour for February and March 2023 delivery. Chicago SRW wheat futures were also flat, dropping a penny to $7.49 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.